Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 41 of Shut Up and Wrestle with my very special, fascinating guest, Kurt Brown, a.k.a. Vandal Drummond of the 605 Super Podcast Extended Universe. We'll be talking more about uh, Kurt in just a minute and about that conversation. Before we do, I want to mention a couple of things. Real quick, I just want to say that uh, for those that haven't seen it already, it's been making the rounds online, but the new January, uh, that's right, I said January issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated is now available. It's the the women's 150 issue. That's what's on the cover. You know, like how we do the PWI 500. Well, we also have the women's 150. And that's in this, this issue. But also in this issue from yours truly, if you'd be so inclined to check it out, is my column, uh, The Lockup, which this month deals with MJF and how uh, he is navigating the world of modern wrestling with a very old school mentality, maintaining his persona at all costs. He is the king of kayfabe in 2022, as far as I'm concerned. And I write all about it this month in the issue. And I uh, just want to pass along in a very discreet manner that this article has indeed even piqued the interest of Mr. Friedman himself. So if MJF can check out the column, then you certainly can in the new issue of PWI, because, of course, he's better than you and you know it. Right. So if you want to check out the new issue of PWI, the January issue, you can get it at PWI-online.com. That's my big plug for this week. But I also want to say that uh, I don't know about you guys. I hope out there I'm not the only one. I know I can't be, but I am really and truly loving Uh, Tales from the Territories on Vice TV. I wasn't really sure how it was going to play out, what kind of show it was going to be. At first, I thought it would be maybe more documentary style, more historical and kind of, you know, very straightforward rundown of each territory. But this approach they're doing with the roundtables and the all the great stories uh, embellished, though they sometimes may be, uh, from the people that experienced them, I find to be really compelling TV. Um, I could do without the super loud music over all of the interviews. But that aside, I'm really loving Tales from the Territory. I'm finally all caught, caught up on my DVR. And uh, I so I hope you folks are enjoying it, too. And I just want to put it out there into the ether that if they ever do an episode on Detroit Big Time Wrestling, my schedule is open, so let me know. Um, anyway, enough about that. Uh, I want to get to the interview with Kurt Brown. So uh, a lot of you probably know him be- uh, better as Vandal Drummond, and I first discovered him listening to the 605 Super Podcast years back. Uh, I always found him to be a fascinating figure and just uh, the, his history in the business and the way that he kind of experienced 
some of the 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 latter years of the territory days, even just as a very young person, um, I find to be a very enviable experience. I do want to say before we get to it, for those of you that are familiar with Vandal, you know that he is a very colorful individual, and that extends to his uh, choice of verbiage. So I just want to say in the past, Shut Up and Wrestle has been, I guess, sort of in the PG realm. I've tried to keep it language-wise from week to week, and this goes out the window this week. I really just uh, officially have given it a pass for one week because you cannot do justice to Vandal Drummond and especially his stories of traveling the roads with the one and only Dr. Jerry Graham, his his great guru and mentor. You can't tell those stories without a little salty language. So hide the kids this week and cover your ears if you have to, because it is a very decidedly R-rated episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. And with that being said, I would like to take you to my conversation with the great Vandal Drummond right now. Okay, so I'm very excited this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to have another illustrious member of what I like to call the 605 Super Podcast Universe, the extended community of the 605. Um, This is going to be a lot of fun. He is somebody that if you've ever listened to that show or many other shows, to be quite frank, then you definitely know who he is. He is, um, how do I describe him? A veteran wrestler. A historian, lucha libre expert, um, a degenerate associate of Dr. Jerry Graham, <laughs> and an all-around amazing hepcat. I'm talking about somebody who is named Kurt Brown, but who you probably know as Vandal Drummond. Thank you for having me here. You I like welcome. your podcast, by the way. This is really out of sight, and you've heard this for the umpteenth time, but your chic book is probably one of the best books ever written wow thank you not just one of the best wrestling books ever written or one of the best books ever written one of the best book as far as biographies uh i can't remember which podcast of yours i was listening to recently but you know you're you're talking about you know getting all the facts down and how you know, there can be a tendency in myths and stories to be rerun in biographies. And I am so glad you didn't go that way because the actual story of the Sheik is much more fascinating, all the uh, all the highs and lows. And I especially loved uh, the early book when you talked about his parents' uh, migration to the U.S. and just what their life was like with the family. That That was just stunning. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Because like I've said on some of those interviews, it really was, especially without having a living person to talk to and this and so few people even who are around still, it makes you feel like an archaeologist or something like you're you're piecing together these things that you're just going a lot of times by documentation, like you're talking about the early family stuff and coming from Syria and all that where they, they they really did come from Syria. Like I started putting that together partly because so much of his actual life as a young person is just not known. I mean, he's sort of like mm-hmm. Jesus Christ in a way where we don't know what <laughs> we don't know what he did until he was 30, right? In the life of Christ, basically. You know, he was born and then he was 30. So I'm not comparing 
uh, the Sheik to Jesus, but only in that one way, because, <laughs> because I thought they also both had nice beards. But I thought I have to, you know, what can I do to to build this up? Because I really don't know a lot about his childhood. Well, why don't we go back in the family history? And Ancestry.com was a lifesaver. You can't believe the things that you could find on there. I mean, I first started researching my own family on there. And I mean, I would encourage anybody to do that. It is absolutely fascinating the stuff they have on there. But but that's what helped me learn so many things about um, Ed Farhat, the Sheik's family. And it's amazing. You say archaeology, and we're doing this form of archaeology thanks to the Internet Highway, the Internet Universe, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, um, and I, I just love how you get you you have more potential to get facts down. Uh, I, I always think of uh, the the book written on the Ramones, "Hey Ho, Let's Go," which was a very good book. But I knew there were a lot of uh, people I knew who were Ramones fans who were upset that they didn't kind of stick with the myths uh, <laughs> with the Ramones. And I always I always get confused why people want that because I th- I think with the Ramones, you know, the myth was that they were you know really like brothers and stuck together and were all out of their minds. Uh, but what fascinated me was they couldn't get along at all, yet they stayed together for a quarter of a century working along, uh, uh, alongside each other. And Joey and Johnny hated each other, but they still worked together. And the truth, actually, I think is usually, usually a lot more fascinating than fiction. Yeah, and I found, I mean, you know, wrestling is full of those kind of things where, and there's always a temptation. There is a temptation, like when people say, um, print the legend, right? That's the old adage. Like if you come across yes. and the legend, print the legend. There's a temptation. But what I try to do is, because some of these stories are so fascinating, sometimes you don't know if they're true or not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes you know they're not true. But it's a really great story. So in some cases, what I do is I say, I, as you said, it saw in the book, I would say flat out, look, this probably didn't happen. But this is <laughs> yes. what people have said may have happened. Or the big one was the story of, and I heard this from other people, and I just, I was not able to believe even myself that it really happened. But there was this story of Vince McMahon um, Jr., basically like calling the sheik to a meeting in Cobo arena. You could almost picture this in 1984 (laughs) or 83, basically when he took it over and having the sheik get down on his knees and beg for a job only to turn him (laughs) down. That was a story I heard from people that he humiliated him and he did this on purpose. Mm -hmm. It's, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, for the people that shared that story, I don't want to make them think that I didn't value it. But I think it was one of those things that got exaggerated over the years. Supposedly, it started from George the Animal Steel, who was a protege uh-huh. of the Sheik, and at that point was working for Vince. And he was the one that kind of started the rumor. I don't know. But it seems like there may have been a kernel of truth somewhere, like maybe he was yes. offered a position and he turned it down because I think he wanted to have too much control and he still wanted to wrestle and these kind of things. And I think Vince wanted him to be more like what he did with, say, like the Briscoes or 
or yeah. you know Jack Tunney or or even the Crusher, where you'd bring him in for a couple of houses and yeah. then be done. So so whatever it was, the deal fell apart, but it got exaggerated into this crazy story that you know. That's and, and- exactly why. That's exactly why I've heard stories of shoots ever since. 1981 i think when i started like hanging with some of the guys or and just other fans you you know there's all the famous shoot stories of billy robinson peter mayavia yada 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 but now whenever i see people bringing them up on the internet i just kind of i keep moving along because every one of those stories i've heard at least five different versions of it and some of them are you know are just so different from you know, a, you know, number one is so different from number five that it's not even the same story anymore. And and when you said the print, the legend, there's a lot of good fiction books out there. Why would I want to write a biography that's fake when I there's a lot of great, uh, you know, modern fiction out there? Right. That's why I was excited to write the book independently because you know I used I worked for WWE and I wrote a book when I was there. It wasn't a biography, but it was like a reference book. And I was sort of held to certain guidelines that I had to, because it was their company, their book, their narrative, you know, but I don't have to do that now. And I didn't even have to work with a family on this book. Mm -hmm. So I was able to have a certain amount of, you know, autonomy and, but, but I wanted to mention, because you're talking about these shoot stories. Did you ever Mm -hmm. hear the, the one about Billy Robinson and Jack Briscoe? That I found to be fascinating because I would, the reason where I found it out was. And look, we're all ridiculous about these things because nobody was there at this point. Uh-huh. We, we didn't know these people. It's just secondhand stories. And I was having a, a conversation, I think it was probably online, about, you know, talking about, well, the difference between, okay, you have a wrestler who was like an amateur wrestler, mm-hmm. a college wrestler, wrestled, you know, in the NCAA, that kind of thing. And then you have someone who's like a hooker who can kill yes. you at will like a snake pit wrestler they're not going to like follow the NCAA rules like like who would actually win and, and it came up like okay and i made the mistake of saying like you know i think that billy robinson probably would have killed somebody like a jack briscoe mm-hmm. who everybody talks about as being the greatest pure wrestler you know that ever held the nwa title and then somebody stepped in and said well i have it on good authority and that apparent, and I don't know. I mean, I, who am I to say it's not true? That apparently they had a gentleman's challenge where they were in a hotel room, and Robinson said something almost exactly like that, like, mm-hmm. "Oh, it's all fine and dandy yeah. that you were, but but I can probably, you know, take you easy." And and in fact, the opposite turned out to be true, according to the story that Briscoe just wiped the floor with him in the hotel room. I don't know if you ever heard that story. I I, I have heard a few versions of that. Um, I. Th- I got to read this book again, but uh, Jack Briscoe's autobiography, which was a really fun read. uh, He talks about it. And if I remember correctly, he said something like I always that he always thought uh, shooter reps were greatly exaggerated. And Billy Robinson was the exception. Hmm. And I, I think he mentioned the shoot, but I can't I can't remember what he said about it. But he said it was like it was like a all in good fun thing like let's see what who can best who yeah i wonder if that's where the story is coming from because i have not read briscoe's book so uh maybe that's where this anecdote came from from briscoe's own point of view but i mean it was interesting to me because um 
you know, it's so silly because pro wrestling is, it really has nothing to do with shooting, at least not in the last exactly. century. But we all have these fantasies still of, but I don't think people do anymore. I really don't. And, you know, like like nobody ever said, well, who'd win in a shoot between, you know, Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes? Like, I don't <laughs> think people were saying that. But but at least up until, you know, maybe the tail end of of those territory days, it was still one of those fantasy questions that people would have well who would really win uh, you know oh, my, my favorite shoot anecdote and i only heard it from one source and it's because it's from this source that it's so uh great is dr jerry graham said that uh uh a couple of promoters uh kind of tricked uh strangler lewis and jim londos to get in a hotel room with them for some sort of business meeting and coaxed them into shooting with each other and uh, just the way the doc would would say it, he said, Jim Londos <laughs> said, uh, I'll put a butterfly on my back, Ed Strangler Lewis, and you will never touch the butterfly. And Lewis said, I'll take that butterfly, put it on the end of my dick and ram it up your Greek ass. <laughs> and then, of course, you asked, Doc, well, what happened to the shoe? says, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I really like to those are the kind of things I mean though where I'm like I really I really hope that happened like I I really wish that it did you know you never yes, know Yes yes like, exactly One of the books you recommended on the 605 a long time ago and I finally got my hands on it was the annotated fall guys Now oh, yeah. I had read the original I had read the unannotated fall guys many years ago over 20 years ago, when I first came to work for WWE, I had a friend there, Marco Torelli, who was this huge wrestling history fanatic. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you got to read this book. You know, he was trying to get me out of just the WWF mindset. And it, it it's one of those things where you start to realize, especially when you read the annotated one, where it's uh, Steve Yoey and Scott Teal, right, where they're yes. breaking down. What's real? What's fantasy? What's true? What's probably not true in this book that was written, you know, in the 1930s about wrestling. And you realize how much of all the things we accept about wrestling history are based on completely unverifiable things that no one's around from that time anymore. And a book like Fall Guys, which was where so many of the stories came from, it mm -hmm. may be complete nonsense we don't we don't mm -hmm. know like, like to this day something like i mean for the people who care anyway like jim londos i think has had his reputation hurt people think mm -hmm. of him as well he was the hulk hogan of the 30s he was a big draw he was, mm -hmm. a, he was a performer but he really couldn't wrestle or you know strangler lewis was the greatest of all time and that kind of thing which we've just digested and absorbed and accepted yes and, and especially when you read the annotated one you start questioning everything. Like I'm, I'm, I'm at a point now because I am interested in these things, where I have one of these like usual suspects Kaiser Soze kind of flashback <laughs> moments, where I'm going, and, and forgive me for saying this, everyone listening, but like I'm going, was Strangler Lewis a complete fraud? It does everything I believe is everything I believe wrong. Was he actually maybe he was the performer? May, maybe Londos was the shooter. Who no, knows? You and me both. Well, one of the things is I got a hold of uh, a copy of Fall Guys, uh, of all places, at a library in 1994. And, you know, uh, I talked to several, you know, 
old timers. I don't think any of them worked with Londos, but they were getting in the biz around the time. And when I mentioned him being, oh, he was just a worker, they they just looked at me like I was from space and said, no, that that guy could go, man. It, he's somebody you didn't want to mess with. And I've always wondered about Strangler Lewis only because whenever we see these old uh, matches of him with like Dick Shikot and uh, when you see other people uh, in the ring back then, I kind of wonder, uh, of course, a lot of these clips were him later in his career when. Right. But, you know, uh, let's just say the other guys captured my imagination a lot more than Strangler Lewis. That's not to say he was, bad, but I do wonder if there was some more myth in there. Right. And I think, you know, something that's not spelled out in Fall Guys is really it seems like he was essentially like one of the first real great heel world champions, like especially when you read about the way he actually did business and the way Mm -hmm. they would book these programs and matches. I mean, from our point of view today, like he was the bad guy. He was setting himself up as the bad guy. And and Mm -hmm. now it's like now he has this reputation as sort of like the Babe Ruth of wrestling and, and this kind of like glorious sports figure. And I I just wish there were more people around from that time period to ask them, like, what was this really like? How was he really seen? Frank Gotch is another great example. How, yes, you know, you, 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 he's like uh, this God of, of pro wrestling from, from its earliest days as a business, you know, a national celebrity and this kind of thing. And the more you read, you start to go, and I know like Mike Chapman, who's written a lot about him, you know, has the opposite view. And he's always claimed that his matches were shoots and this kind of thing. But then you read a lot of things about how, I don't know, I think he was maybe just kind of a a bully and a crook. (laughs) That's what my assumption was. And uh, this is not a knock on Mike Chapman, but sounds like he kind of, you know, kind of holds gotch on a pedestal that's just my take and uh you know not knocking him for it but it sounds like he kind of idealizes him a bit um Mm. and oh well in fact another another conversation i think about dave Meltzer was friends with luthez and they were talking about you know thez thez was talking about you know his toughness and stuff like that, but Fez at one point admitted to Dave. But then again, I was I was never really tested, you know. Right. There's always that uh, that standoff where who wants to mess with Blue Fez? But then again, the world champs then also had people around them who could have their back if somebody wanted to test them. Right. Like so I think you never know. <laughs> I think there's a couple of interesting things about Fez. Like I think later on in life, I think even he. If I'm not wrong, I think I may because I spoke to him a couple times in interviews mm-hmm. and things. I think he would even say to the effect of like, well, you know, I was not in the class of like a Jack Briscoe, for example. Like I, I even not. Oh, like, really? Yeah. Wow. I think he, even he admitted that saying like, you know, mm-hmm. that Briscoe was he didn't outright say it. But what he was hinting at was that he was sort of like he didn't have the credentials that Briscoe had. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was a, a carny wrestler that got taught to shoot. Yeah. Styles in the back rooms of wherever, whereas Jack was, you know, the real deal. He was like a, a, a professional, not professional, but, but you know, a polished athlete trained in wrestling, this kind of thing. And that it was just an apples and oranges thing. But I also think that maybe a lot of what we 
think about Strangler Lewis and the way he's looked at is because of Thez, because Thez lived <laughs> such a long life and he was constantly evangelizing about how great Lewis was. I think he helped to maybe build the myth there, if there is a myth. Yeah, I could understand that too, because Strangler Lewis uh, really helped make Thez's career. And I, I, right. Uh, I, I think he was paying homage to the guy who uh, made him who he was. Not didn't make him who he was, but helped to make him who he was. Yeah, he was like a mentor to him. I also think a lot of people felt bad for him late in life because of what rough shape that yes. he was in. But it's funny that Thez would say that he was never really truly tested because what I found as a fan, I talked to other people on the show about this, and I promise we won't spend an hour talking about Luther. <laughs> but uh, what I found was um, – when you actually watch him work and watch his matches, he's not, you know, he's a performer. I mean, he's a performer mm -hmm. just like all the 50s wrestlers were, the TV wrestlers of that era. It doesn't match up a lot of times to me. I'll take the heat for this to the way that he would describe himself. Let's just put it that way. Like um, he, he was very much a the type of matches he would have, I don't think anybody would confuse them with being, you know, shoots of any kind. Absolutely not. No, they were performances. And, you know, it, you know, and even in MMA, there are guys who, I think Colby Covington, I, you know, he was on a winning streak, but they were about to drop him just because uh, Dana White didn't find him interesting enough. <laughs> and then he got his persona going and, you know, you know, obviously those matches are not work, but it's it's all about who's going to watch, who's yeah. who's going to raise the eyebrows of people. You have to have color. And speaking of raising eyebrows, now I have to get to this because you already dropped the name, and this is one of the uh -huh. most fascinating things that I find listening to you. And I think I've I said this to you at CAC, and I'll say it again on here <laughs> for people to hear your connection to Dr. Jerry Graham and the way that you were you know in each other's lives and just the, the 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 friendship you had whatever you want to call it when he you know he as a much older man at the end of his career or towards the end of his life and you as a very young man you know crossing paths like this it reminds me of you know like Ed Wood and Bella Lugosi or <laughs> or or like uh, uh um uh Tim Burton and Vincent Price that kind of thing where it's like this <laughs> This young person who's or Peter Bogdanovich and Orson Welles, I'll flatter yes. you with that one. It really <laughs> reminds me of that, of like being around this insane genius at the end of his career in life. And you're a young person in awe of who this person is and absorbing everything. And now that they're gone, long gone, you are like the torchbearer for this incredibly <laughs> unique and fascinating person. I think it's amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was uh, it was a surreal and fascinating experience being his friend. And I, uh, you know, the best way to describe Dr. Jerry Graham is he's one part a gritty Raymond Chandler novel. You know, he lived in these like, you know, low rent hotels where, you know, there, there was all sorts of dangerous action going on. I mean, you didn't see dangerous action all the time, but, uh, you know, the, the really gritty, just Raymond Chandler aura, but it's also half Looney Tunes cartoon. Mm. I mean, when he had been drinking, uh, when we'd be driving him home, 
he would get a cigarette out and he'd get his matches. He'd light a match and, you know, oh, and I must add, this is when he was, uh, like, you know, totally wasted on whatever was around. If he, his choice right. was drink, but if somebody had a joint or somebody had a drop of acid, he would take that too. What a thought. Dr. Jerry Graham tripping on acid. Oh, that oh, is... oh, there, there is a story of somebody <laughs> uh, who, I, I thought it was Jack Armstrong who told me this, but he, I, th I think it was him said that he ha drove Doc home and somebody gave him si six tabs of acid in the 60s, in the 60s when acid was right. bam, not like today's acid. But right. so anyway, we're uh, we're driving home and he is trying to light cigarettes and he literally, this is not an exaggeration, went through a whole book of matches where he'd light a match, but by the time it got to his cigarette, it was out. <laughs> and he went through the whole whole book of matches and he's just like, light, I need a light. And I'm saying, I don't smoke, Doc. He goes, fire, I need fire, I need fire. <laughs> and then, I kid you not, he takes the little uh, cigarette lighter in my car, takes it out, and then he places it in his other hand on the hot side. And about three seconds later, lets out this, yeah, and drops it and <laughs> is staring at his hand like, how did that happen? And that mm. that was him. You know, he, he, you know, you're you're like a Bugs Bunny, but investigating a murder scene in the Imperial Hotel in downtown L.A. <laughs> so so I, I do have a couple of questions about this, mm -hmm. because these are the things like when, whenever I, I hear you tell these stories. They're the questions that always pop in my head, and I can't ask them because I'm just listening to you, and now you're here, so I can ask you. The first thing, obviously, and, and also forgive me if you've already told these stories or or the, you know this kind of thing, but how did you got? How did you first meet him? How did he come into your life? Let's start with that. Well, uh, I had just gotten to know uh, first two wrestlers I ever like actually hung out with were some boys working for the LA territory, uh, Tim flowers and, uh, bad boy, Bobby lane. And Bobby lane actually is Bobby Pico, whose parents were Bobby Pico and Anna Laverne and his sisters, Marie Laverne all in the business. But, uh, that was when Anton, the Ripper Leone was running opposition to LaBelle. Not well, kind of opposition. He ran in a lot of towns that LaBelle didn't run. Uh, but uh, Dr. Jerry Graham was on one of Leone's shows. And when we told Tim Flowers, Tim said, oh my God, I know him. We got to, I got to get up there with you guys. Uh, see the doc. And so we go to Strongbow Stadium in Bakersfield one Saturday night. And uh, Doc was doing commentary for the TV. And, you know, Tim uh, goes, you know, and says, hey, Doc, and I can, you know, tell their old pals and that sort of thing. But it wasn't actually Tim who introduced me to the Doc that night. It was John Tolis. And uh, John Tolis with a total poker face he sees me outside in the parking lot of Strongbow Stadium and walks up and with a straight face says, 
hey, kid, I understand you live in the L.A. area. And I go, uh, yes, sir, Mr. Tolis. I'm, I'm, I'm this 19-year-old kid, and John Tolis is approaching me. And I'm just like, oh, my <laughs> God. And he says, well, listen, you know, I'm supposed to be his ride home, uh, but I live more in the Woodland Hills area, which is a, a good a half hour out of my way. Is there any way I could get you to give Dr. Jerry Graham a ride home? tonight and i'm like me dr jerry gray yes and i was with my friend lloyd who you know we were always we were kind of road dogs back then and we're like we're going home with dr jerry graham <laughs> and tolis kept a straight face because we know why he wanted us to drive dr jerry home is because uh <laughs> doc could, doc could cause quite a party whether you wanted him to or not and uh, so I had already been uh, drinking quite a bit that night and we had my car, uh, but Tim, so Tim Flowers was the designated driver that night and I was a drunk kid in the backseat and we're going up Highway 99 and, you know, when Doc was sober, I mean, he had this baritone voice and how you doing, young man? It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, and. I got to see the Jekyll and Hyde shift within mm. an hour of knowing him because when we got on Highway 99, he says, "Hey Tim, uh, let's uh, let's pull off the highway here. I want to get a couple of beers." And <laughs> and this kid thinking, eh, "I don't know if I should let people drive in my car, but this is Dr. Jerry Graham and a couple of beers. What's the big deal?" And a few minutes later, he comes out with. A couple of beers, a couple of bottles of wine, and a couple of bottles of hard stuff, and about a dozen cigars that he stole from the store. Oh, my God. He just sat in the oh seat, and he God. pulls out all these cigars, and he throws them at us in the back seat, just over his head, and uh, just says, there you go, cigars from heaven, enjoy, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and he just starts chugging this stuff like crazy, like, like he drinks hard stuff like water. And then he starts letting out his war cry. <laughs> and he's screaming these obscenities into the heavens. And I'm and I'm like, oh, shit, what have I gotten myself into? Oh, no, no. <laughs> and I think after that night, I kind of thought I'm avoiding this guy. But uh started seeing him and I started Getting just this, uh, uh, he started appealing to me. I mean, I'll say he was one of the most vulgar, uh, vile people I ever <laughs> met. And I, I don't want to act like I was this saint who understood him. It was a conditional friendship. I did not net let him know where I live because <laughs> I knew what, I learned shortly after what happened to people who invited Doc to his house. Uh, even if he didn't re remember their address, he'd remember where they lived and show up at unexpected times. Wow. Now, around what time frame are we talking about here? Is this like early so this 80s? Was a, this was the summer of 1981. And okay. what really, really got me, uh, I, I remember the moment when I said, okay, I really have to get to know this guy is uh, Tom Hankins, who was uh, uh, along with his... Uh, wrestling brother Perry were a tag team and they did some work in the South and uh, for the Dusics in Iowa. And uh, they were also working with Leone. Well, uh, Tom Hankins day job was he worked from, for some guy who uh, 
had a chain of adult bookstores in the Southern California area. And he was throwing a huge Christmas party at a restaurant. And Tom Hankins calls my friend Lloyd and says, okay, listen, I want you and Kurt at the party and I want you to bring the doc. And uh, they're like, are you, I think Lloyd said, are you sure? And go, yeah, we have to have the doc there. So we pick up the doc, Lloyd and I, and we go to this Christmas party and he's quite congenial for a little while. And then he keeps drinking beers and other stuff. And he, he just starts, uh, how saucy can the language be on this podcast? You know what? I'm probably going to put a disclaimer at the beginning. So you could just have at it. (laughs) It's fine. When, when doc drank, when doc drank heavily, uh, he would scream something sometimes into the heavens, sometimes right into some poor sod's face, but it was like a mantra. I mean, I, and I kid you not, I, even came across a newspaper article that inferred that he screamed as such back all, all the way back to 1963. Wow. And what it was is he would just scream, you suck your mother's pussy, you cornholed your pregnant brother, and you fucked your pregnant sister, you whore. <laughs> And he would do it multiple times. It was a religious mantra. It was something from the night I met him to, you know, <laughs> the, the last time, you know, I saw, well, not the last time I saw him, but, you know, toward the end, he would be screaming this all the time. And so at this party, he is getting into arguments with some people who are trying to give him shit. Uh, uh, I can't remember. Some guy wanted to arm wrestle him, and he just grabbed the guy by the wrist and, and like, kind of pulled him across the table. I, I, I think the story's well, like we said, story was exaggerated to like he threw the guy across the room, but it was a lot less dramatic than that. Hmm. But uh, there was one guy he was just pissed at and was just screaming. Uh, oh, and this was odd. On this particular night, he was screaming in the guy's face, "You suck my mother's pussy." <laughs> And I'm like, you're my, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and, and finally the guy realizes I kind of better get away from this guy. And he says, well, I'll see you later, uh, Mr. Graham. And Doc <laughs> says, I certainly hope not. <laughs> so we, uh, 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 we get Doc into the car. Uh, the only friend he made that night was a waiter who was, this uh, Mexican guy who Doc would say, uh, Garcon, uno mas cerveza, please. <laughs> and uh, this guy had a big grin on his face all night long when other people were looking perturbed by the Doc. And Doc says, what's your name, young man? And the guy says, oh, you've just got to be Pancho Villa, sir. And Doc loved him. He loved the Doc. Nobody else in the room loved the Doc that night. But we got him into the car. <laughs> And Tom Hankins had this present, which was a nicely wrapped bottle of booze, and we could tell it was a bottle of booze. So they were about to give it to the doctor and said, no, no, you're giving it to us. We'll give it to the doc once we get him to his hotel. I don't need my uh, I don't need my car smelling of brandy tonight. And so we get him to his, uh, you know, flea bag hotel in downtown L.A., it took forever to get him to his room on the third floor. Uh, it was just 
three sheets to the wind. So we get to his room and he gets out his keys and he can't get, again, Looney Tunes, he can't get the key into the keyhole. So uh, Lloyd opens the door for him and uh, we look in the room, the lights are out, but there's a little black and white TV. We see the, the glow of the black and white TV and we look in his bed and we can't see it very well, but there is a blonde, a blonde in his bed watching TV and we look at each other and uh, Lloyd hands him his keys and the doc just takes the keys and throws the keys behind him somewhere in the room. We hand him uh, the box that had the booze in it and then he throws that behind him and just says, give me a call. And we're like, this is amazing. He like, He's down and out. He's in this scary hotel and he has a woman in his bed still. Like, <laughs> what's the story? So two days later, we took him to a, one of the Lucha Libre shows at Hadco Plaza. And when we pick him up, he's, you know, totally sober. And, uh, you know, I ask him like, oh, so Doc, we saw some lucky lady in your bed. Who is she? And he just has this like fond smile. Go, oh, that's Maxine. She is such a sweetie. Oh, what a dear. You know, I, every time I come home, the the house is you know my my room is cleaned and you know and you know, oh she's great in the sack and oh all woman all woman. And then he pauses and says, "Well, wait, let me rephrase that. Above the navel, all woman." <laughs> <laughs> That was the moment I said, I have to get to know this man. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. <laughs> See, the, the, this is great because he is one of those classic examples. People talk about the wrestling business, especially in those days, how, you know, it was the subversive place where people would go mm -hmm. who that was their home. Like in a lot of cases, they were. They couldn't have fit in anywhere else in society. You know, they were they were these subversive people. They would have been, you know, unable to to thrive in any way. And they they seemed to be made for the wrestling business. It attracted them. And it was like so many wrestlers have told me on interviews. It's like the wrestling itself, the stuff that you did in the ring, it was the least part of your lifestyle. It was like, well, mm -hmm. we have to get this, we have to get this 15, 20 minutes out of the way every night. And aside from that, Wow, we could do whatever the hell we want, you know. And, <laughs> and he and he was like the classic example of that. Like like wrestlers, I remember Scott Hall said to me and other people, if if you never want to leave middle school, you know, this is the perfect <laughs> business to be in. You never have to grow up, and you can be it's Peter Pan, you know, forever. <laughs> and, but but he's like the textbook case of that, you know, Doctor Jerry Graham. I I and you know I I this didn't dawn on me until earlier this year, but I uh, was interviewing Mickey Doyle, who knew the doc also. Yeah. And as we were talking about him, it kind of hit me in the middle of the conversation. And I said, you know, I think one of the reasons not only did I want to hang around him and why he has stayed like in my heart to this day is I was this 19 year old kid who was the black sheep of the family. I was, I was the youngest of five kids and the closest to my age was eight years older than me. And, uh, my siblings range from, uh, 
my sister's an economics professor. I have a brother who's a corporate attorney, uh, brother who's an architect, and then the Tom Sawyer, the family who's a woodworker. And I was just this just nut job kid who didn't fit in anywhere really. I was, you know, I'll, I'll just say, you know, I didn't think so at the time, but I was mental, and I didn't know how how am I going to handle adult life? How do I navigate through this world? I, you know. You know, I, I'm kind of out there. I can't, I have a hard time sticking to anything. And so in hindsight, I meet this guy who was far more out there than I ever could be. And uh, I mean, I wasn't this wild kid who's doing crazy, silly things. I was just somebody, I didn't really have an, uh, an oar for my rowboat. Uh, right. And I didn't know, how do you get through adult life when you're somebody like me who just, you know, feels kind of incompetent and awkward and I see this guy who was way more out there and somebody who grew up with a family who had money. I mean, not Rockefeller rich, but his his mom uh, and stepdad were well off. And how that. do you get and how and then how do you make all the money he made in wrestling? But then you're in these flop houses and you're still going. You're still moving ahead. You know, all systems go move forward. Uh Right. Yeah. See, that's the thing with him was, you know, in, in those earlier years when he was teaming with Eddie Graham and, you know, they were a big hit in New York and elsewhere. And mm-hmm. th- th- I guess there was this idea that, you know, he, Jerry was the more colorful one. He was the more mm-hmm. entertaining one. And I guess that made people assume that he was sort of the brains of the deal or the one mm-hmm. driving it forward. But really, it was kind of the opposite. It was like Eddie was kind of the master. He was the more serious one. He was the mastermind. He was sort of the one. And you see what happened later where he got his own territory and he's and he's, you know, kind of a, you know, a a big deal. And and Jerry, just like you said, sort of went off into this bizarre kind of kind of life. It shows you what, what was going on in those early years was very different, I think, from probably what people thought. Oh, yeah. He was chaos. He was, uh, I, I think, what, what was a movie in the 90s uh, where Godzilla uh, fights Mecha King Ghidra? Yes. There, the quote The quote that applies to the doc is, uh, he is neither good nor evil. He is a force of nature. Right. That's how they describe Godzilla in the movie. Yes. Right. Yes. 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 And that was doc. You know, we, we uh, went to his hotel one night. And we knew that he only had one set of clothes because he uh, was in the drunk tank one night. And for some reason, they wouldn't give him his items back, his brief, his suitcase back. Uh, he was coming home from a wrestling show and got into trouble. And we, a few nights later, we go to his hotel and his door's open, but he's not there. But his clothes are on his bed. And somewhere, we think it might have been on the ceiling of the hotel, we can hear him letting out his war, war cry. And we're just like looking at each other and says, that's the only suit of clothes he has. So wherever he is in the hotel, he is naked. He is stark <laughs> naked. And I and, mean, yeah, go on. No, I'm sorry. And, and we, we the next day, we even say, where were you, Doc? Doc, we saw your clothes, but not you. And he just smiles and says, there's nights you just gotta patrol the halls, kids. You gotta <laughs> you gotta keep people in line in this hotel. That's me. <laughs> you and you mentioned uh, Mickey Doyle and talking to him about uh, Dr. Jerry Graham and him knowing him. That makes me think of too is because uh, I I talked to Mickey for the Sheik book and 
you know, mm -hmm. as people know, like that was the area where Mickey got started and the Detroit mm -hmm. area there. And, and that's one of those places because Dr. Jerry Graham comes up briefly in my book where, especially towards the end, the later part, I don't want to say the end because he had such a long career, but the later mm -hmm. part of the doc's career, he was kind of coasting on his reputation. Like, um, you know, he did burn a lot of bridges, right? I oh, mean, like, yeah. There were people that just didn't want to deal with him anymore because of his eccentricities or he just wasn't reliable. But there was just something about him where people would go, oh, we're going to give him another shot. Oh, you know, uh, yeah. And the Sheik was one of those people where he would bring him in even in later mm -hmm. years. And, of course, that's when he teamed him up with Jerry Jaffe, Dr. Jerry Graham Jr., which was sort of like, can you watch him for us, please? Make, <laughs> oh, make sure he's okay. Yes, yeah. And, uh, you know, people would keep giving him chances, what I'm trying to say. Oh, I I, I heard that uh, Vince Sr. Uh, gave him, like, just umpteen chances. Like, he really wanted to work for some reason. I don't know what it was. I mean, uh, you know, when he is sober, he could be very charming and actually, you know, pretty delightful. But, uh yeah, I, I I don't know why he got so many chances. I would love to be able to go back in time and just, you know, be a fly on the wall and hear <laughs> the promoter's reasons why they kept using him. They kept giving him it a go, but... Well, even even Vince Jr., because uh, the mm -hmm. story, as you know, everybody knows the famous story of how young Vince, you know, teenage Vince, was <laughs> was obsessed with Dr. Graham, much like yourself. That's what you yes. and, you and Vince McMahon have something in common. You know, the story, the stories, the only thing. <laughs> but, you know, those stories of young Vince riding in his convertible with the doc and the docs lighting <laughs> the cigars with the hundred dollar bills and Vince dyes his hair blonde and pisses off his dad and all that. Um, you know, I've heard those stories. Did did Doc ever bring anything up about Vince or the McMahons he at all? He told us that exact story. He wow. told us that exact story. And we just thought it was one of his stories. And that was the weird thing. He would tell some real crazy stories that obviously weren't true. But then we'd find occasionally some of them were spot on. Uh, he's the one who told us the story about Ron Pope bashing in Frankie, head, Frankie Lane's head with a pipe. And we just said, yeah, right. You know, we're, we're just... I mean, we're we're not telling him yeah, right. We're thinking yeah, right. And then a few years later, Mickey Doyle's saying, "You ever wonder why Frankie uh, Lane's uh, face is so contorted? You know, making him him look like the the jerk he is." And I'm going, "What?" And he goes, "That's because Ron Pope bashed his head in with a pipe." And we're going, "Oh, okay, well." And it's and the funny thing is, a lot of the stories that he was bullshitting about were stories that weren't that far out right the ones he told that sounded crazy more, you know more often than not were true <laughs> and when i you know the crazy thing is because a couple of times when i i had a chance to interview vince when i worked there for various projects and he would especially if you were talking about the past i'm telling you he would bring up dr jerry graham's name every time <laughs> Every really? time, like an inordinate amount of times, like when he, whenever he was listing people, you know, that were that he remembered from those days, his name was always on the list. And I remember when they did 
they did this invasion angle, right, in 2001 when WCW yes. came in and they were doing this storyline. WCW is invading the WWF. And I don't know if people remember this, but they do this thing where I, it's Vince and he's giving a pep talk to all of his wrestlers that they have to stand up for the legacy of his company, right, of the mm-hmm. WWF. And he's mentioning, you know, stand up for the legacy of, you know, Andre the Giant and Chief J Strongbow. And he's naming all these names. And he says, and Dr. Jerry Graham. He actually oh, my says, God. I didn't see that. I didn't yes. even know about that. <laughs> he did. He listed him as one of the people whose legacy they were fighting for. I mean, he made an impression on this guy. You know, it's crazy. And he also, um, again, you probably know, but he's another one who tried to give him a chance he tried to bring him in when well, this would have been after the years you're talking about when Vince was um expanding his company because Bobby Davis told me this because he was another one who got a shot mm-hmm. where Vince brought in Bobby Davis and Dr. Jerry Graham and was trying to just think of anything that they could do because he loved the both of them. Mm-hmm. Like he tried to make Bobby Davis an announcer and Bobby rest his soul. He said this to me himself that he was terrible. And that Vince said, I it can't, you know, it, that he just, he tried to make him like a heel announcer. Like, I think it was when Jesse Ventura was having his, you know, his union threats were, <laughs> were big yeah. and he was trying to replace him. But Dr. Jerry Graham too, I guess he brought him in. And I think he just literally, could not figure out what job he could possibly give him, but he just wanted him around, but he oh, just he couldn't. Did. Yeah. I th- yeah, I think they were trying to figure what to do with him. He made one appearance on Tuesday Night Titans. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And um, I, well, according to Doc, things went wrong when he decided to pay Vince uh, a visit and Doc was in no state to pay anybody a visit. And I guess he came in right when uh, he was having a meeting with a couple of people from the IRS. Oh, no. And according to Doc, uh, he just looked at one of the guys and said, I owe you a million dollars. I dare you to try to get it back. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess what could Vince do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, um, you know, there, there was a story that that Bobby told me. Um, I I found, you know, I'm not the only person to talk to Bobby Davis, but he was very reclusive in his later years. Mm-hmm. He was a manager for a little bit for the Grahams. And um, I track I know Tim Hornbaker also talked to him for the Buddy Rogers book, but I I tracked him down. I just had this goal in my head. I have to find Bobby Davis. It was like that mm-hmm. movie uh, Garbo Talks, you know. I have to mm-hmm. find this this elusive character. I found him. And I talked to him a few times before he passed. And he told me, he told me this story. I don't know if you ever heard. And I'm not, you know, it, it's a it's a sign of the of the dark humor that the doc had. Very dark humor. Oh, yes. But it was a story of, I guess, um, I guess Bobby and the doc were in their period where they were trying out for the WWF at the time that Eddie Graham killed himself. And Bobby told me the story of when they were in the room and they heard the news of what happened. Did you ever hear that story? I because he had a very, I, I mean, dark <laughs> joke to make about that. I'm, I'm not sure what this story is, but I remember when I found out that Eddie Graham had shot himself. Uh and I know I'm saying things in a very roundabout way here, but I guess I should back up. When I first knew Doc, he one day he would 
be complimentary about Eddie mm-hmm. and the next day he'd say, I just wish he had died that cock, you know, sucker and that right. kind of thing. And then just all of a sudden, if you brought up Eddie, he just would start cursing up a storm and just say nothing good about him. And we didn't think that much of it, but it, it was curious. And then when I found out that uh, Eddie Graham had died, uh, I assumed that Doc had not already heard it because I heard it like like the day after it happened. And right. news traveled slowly back then, sure. as, uh, at least wrestling-wise. And so I thought, wow, I better uh, call Doc. I, I bet when he hears this, he's going to he's gonna kind of like have a little reflection or, you know, think back on their old times. And so at, at the hotel he lived at, you know, there's a phone in the hallway. So uh, I, I call for the doc and, you know, he gets the phone. And I, before I even tell him, he says, Kirk, Kirk. He could never remember that my name is Kurt. It was always Kirk, Kirk. <laughs> and he goes, Kirk, did you hear the news? I go, uh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, it's called retribution, Kurt. It's called retribution. Oh, man. And I I learned that the reason he turned so cold on the doc is uh, the late Natasha, the hatchet lady who just passed away recently. Mm-hmm. God rest her soul. I never met her, but she actually corresponded with the doc in his later years. And I know this because I actually saw the letter she wrote to him and he would write her back and he just adored her. and. She was working for an opposition promotion that had TV, I think, in 82, I want to say. Promotion where Tony Marino worked as Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> God. Uh, she, I guess she called Doc very upset because I guess Eddie Graham called her and was actually like making threats on her grandkids, according, according to what Doc said. Yeah. And he wouldn't forgive after that. So... <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, who knows if that's even true? I mean, I've heard, yeah. I, I remember reading in, in Jim Wilson's book, and I guess Chokehold, that's another one that people sometimes say you could take things with a grain of salt. I don't yes, know. Absolutely. But, Jim, but Jim Wilson talks about how he found Eddie Graham to be sadistic and, and mm-hmm. kind of like he took almost like a sexual glee in watching these wrestlers get stretched and tortured and put into these painful holds. Like he would, he would have Bob Roop kind of torture yeah. guys in the ring and almost get like a, like a kick out of it. Like he really paints a very distasteful picture, but mm-hmm. the story that Bobby told me was that they were backstage, I guess at WWF, mm-hmm. This was 85, I guess, is when it happened. And the news was going around uh, about what happened. And so I guess, I mean, it's a delicate story and I'm trying not to be in bad taste here, but what, you know, Eddie Graham. It's okay. I've already been. In you, you've thrown that now. out the window, Kurt. But see, now we're going from sex to violence. Those are very different <laughs> areas. But so, so, okay. So Eddie Graham shot himself with a shotgun. Uh, that's how he killed himself. And apparently apparently um he he did not succeed on the first attempt let's just mm-hmm. say. and he had to try a second time which is a horrible thought uh but uh, um the story got around backstage in detail of exactly that that mm-hmm. he that he had failed and he had to set everything up again and do it again and you know he was not obviously in good shape the first time and uh jerry said something to the effect of well 
That's my brother. He even fucked up that finish. <laughs> now that that is about as dark a joke. Oh as you my can god, get. that that's dark even for the doc. Yeah. yeah. And no, I, no, it, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because he he could be very dark. Uh, uh, oh, oh, I remember when Sam Mushnick retired. We're driving up to uh, Bakersfield, and somebody uh, says to Doc. Hey Doc, did you hear about Sam Mushnick? And he he looked over to the back seat with this big grin, like a child on Christmas Day. Did he die? Uh, no, he retired. And then he just went, "Oh shit!" Oh man! <laughs> he goes, "God damn it, my troops! I thought you had great news for me, but but it's funny. He could be that dark, but uh, there'd be times when he had been drinking really heavily, and if we're drinking, we're you know when we're going on the Bakersfield road trips, just out of nowhere, he would look at me and just say, hey, hey. And I'd look at him and he looked like this <clears throat> lost child. Like he had this just sorrowful look in his face. And he says, my father died. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, oh yeah, I know about that doc. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. And then he looks at me and says, then my mother died. And I'm going, you know, I, I'm like a 20-year-old kid. I don't know what to say. And I'm going, yeah, I'm so sorry, Doc. I'm, and he just would shake his head like, like, why does reality have to be like this? Mm. You know, and every and uh, every now and then you'd see something where you wonder what made him what he was. Like what, yeah, I, I've had so many people say I should write a biography on him. But yeah, if I really dug deep and found out what made him as chaotic as he was, I think it might just freak me out, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, I guess <laughs> we, we spent half our time talking about the doc, but that's a good thing. But, but I have to ask, since you were talking about his parents, the famous or infamous story, did you ever hear anything about, did he ever talk about that story supposedly of him stealing his mother's body right from the yes. morgue. so the story was for people that don't know that his his mother had died he went down to the hospital i guess right refusing to accept <laughs> the truth of what happened broke in or something to that effect after hours at night and oh not after hours he or just, what, i think during stole the day, her body he walked into the hotel room God. with a shotgun a hunting knife and his 12 year old son jim with him Mm. and uh, that poor kid that poor child oh that's the first God. thing i think of in fact i have to say god jim graham is on facebook and sounds like a good guy uh i'll never forget about a year ago somebody made some uh some comment on a post about the doc like uh some comment about him stealing his mom's body and Jim Graham just wrote in the comment, been there, seen that. <laughs> so well, God bless him for letting it flow, flow like a water off a duck. But uh, yeah, what happened was he just, he just says, leave me, you know, just stay away. I just want to get my mom's body. And uh, two orderlies tried to stop him and he just chucked them across the room. Uh, he shot the gun at one point, didn't, thankfully didn't hit anybody 
And I always forget whether he, he carried the body out or pushed the body out in a gurney. But by the time he got to the parking lot, uh, there were a whole bunch of police there ready for him. And I guess he was ready to fight them. But fortunately, one of his in-laws was uh, one of the officers and talked him down. So, yeah. Wow. yeah. I, I, I don't know what the story is, but story of how he got from where he I mean he was an accomplished guy he I, I saw his transcripts in school uh, from college once uh he he had great very good grades and he was a star football player uh on the football team Amazing. I think it was Grand Canyon State I think but which one I think it was Grand Canyon Grand. State I can't remember, but I actually found a photo of him in an Arizona paper during that time. So I always wonder just, you know, what, yeah, I don't think people are just born like that. I, right. you know, I think, I think shit went, shit had to happen to him when he was a kid. It could you be know? that. I, and I also have always had this theory that sometimes I think in some cases it's just the wrestling business, you know, it, it sometimes twists people around or, I don't know what the oh, right yeah. word is. Yeah. Like, even if you look at someone like the Iron Sheik, Khazro Faziri, how mm-hmm. he seemed like, and other people have been like this, where they seem like such straight-laced, disciplined people yes. Yes. when they come into the business. And then you see what happens uh, to them. You know, maybe um, maybe he was one of those, you know, or maybe it tapped into something from, like you said, his childhood or his yeah. Well, one it, it thing activated one thing I, something in in him. <laughs> yeah, well one thing I do remember is he um you know, he was born Jerry Matthews, but his name legally was Graham and he wouldn't go into it, but if you talked about his birth father, he just cursed his name. He just he just said he was a son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. But the stepfather uh I guess must have been a hell of a guy because like I said, he'd get he'd get teary eyed talking about losing him, but losing his mom was the worst. But I heard a story from uh, I shouldn't say I heard it. I read it in uh, Greg Oliver and Steve Johnson's book, uh, The Heels, that he uh, was uh, in the 82nd Airborne, and uh, he had to- always told us that he saw action in World War II. It's true he was in the 82nd Airborne. The only thing is his mom had uh, ties to uh, one of the, to um, I think it was Democratic Party in Arizona or something like that. She was a supporter of Barry Goldwater. She actually knew Barry Goldwater, we found out. And she pulled strings to make sure that he wouldn't see action. Um, mm. And from what I've heard, he did want to see action. He was ready to go, but... He had a uh, he had a mom who I think just tried to keep him at bay all the time, so that might have something to do with right. It. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's fast. See now, now you're yeah. making me want to read this book <laughs> or, or find out more about this person. Just so unique. That this is this is one of the things I love about wrestling is just there's people. Where else in society or life? Would yes. these people be able to exist? You know, it's oh, just exactly. Maybe I, old Hollywood, which is another area I'm fascinated by too. You know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Have you ever read the book Tinseltown? 
No, no. I, I, uh, I, I got, I recently got a book that fascinated me. I mean, it's not exactly heavy reading or anything, but it was, it's called of all the gin joints. And it's ah. all about, it's all about who were the most notorious um, drunks of Hollywood in that era oh. <laughs> uh, going, you know, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. Some of the stories are incredible because especially people that I guess didn't really have a reputation for being that, at least not that I was aware of people that seemed to have their act together and they mm-hmm. really did not, you know, they, oh, were, the, yeah, they yeah. were the famous ones, you know, and then they're like the John Barrymore's and, you know, and Spencer Tracy where they'd have to like yeah. find them passed out in a hotel room somewhere and drag them to the set. But then there's people that <laughs> I really didn't know Humphrey Bogart, another one, but people that I thought were on, you know, were not yeah. like that. But again, I think it was because that world and the environment and the freedoms, it encouraged sometimes maybe the worst instincts in people. That they if could everybody just tells you, yes. If right. everybody tells you, yes, you're going to do whatever you damn please and think it's a good idea, even though rationally, you know, it is not a good idea. Yes. Yeah. I think it, they just, you know, they, they interviewed me for this documentary that Vice TV was doing about Vince McMahon. Now, by the time this thing comes out that we're doing right now, this do- the documentary is probably already going to be out. So I, I have no idea what they're going to use or if they're going to use any of it. I really, uh, I'm probably the least well-known person they talk to. So God knows if they will use any of it. But one thing I said when they asked me, you know, they go, well, is it, would you say Vince McMahon is an evil person? You know, they're trying to get you to have that oh, reaction, yeah. right? And I gave a very measured and sober response, but it was like the perfect, because I think he's another example of that. I said, oh. look, he's a human. Do I think he's an evil person? No, I don't. I think he's a human being. I think mm-hmm. he has a dark side. He has you know, like a lot of us do, he's got uh, maybe self-destructive tendencies and things. And because of being in such a position of power, and no one was in a bigger position of power than he was, that he was able to just give in to those impulses and the dark side without any ramifications. So many of us probably would do the same, whether we want to admit it or not, if we were in that situation. So I, I don't know if I would call him an evil person, you know? Well, Let's think back to our adolescent years. I think we've all done stuff where we did something where we almost got into really horrible trouble and it could have ended badly, but somehow we got out unscathed. Our parents didn't find out and we swear we'll never do it again. And we mean it. A week later, the temptation's there. Okay, just one more time. And before you know it, you get cocky and think, ah, they're never going to catch me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then you get more brazen, like especially mm-hmm. in a case like Vince's case where you do get caught a couple of times or in the cases of maybe a former president or two come to mind, I won't name, <laughs> but you get away with something and nothing really happens. And then you go, oh, wait a minute. So I could just do this and nothing bad's going to happen. I'm going to be, you know, I just shake the, I have a couple of rough weeks. I, I brush the dust off my shoulders and everything's back to the way it was. I think that makes you even more prone to do even more oh, bad I, stuff. You know, I, I think so. And I, I, you know, even though I know back in the old days in Hollywood, there were scandal sheets and stuff like that. There were also people to protect the image and pay off those scandal sheets, yes. not to let too much be known. You know, uh, there are, or in the case of the silent actress Theda Berra, they can, they went. Uh, so far as to create a completely fictional story about who she was 
and where she grew up and what her parents were that were nowhere remotely true. And they did it to the point where they actually rented out an apartment to make it look like she did come from, I think, Egypt or something like that. Amazing. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, oh, and Tinseltown, by the way, surrounds the murder of William Desmond Taylor, who uh, was the guy who was to keep Hollywood kind of in line. But there are so many stories of Hollywood that uh, encompass the story of his murder, including mm. the silent actress, uh, Nor- um, oh. There was what? the one. Mabel Norman. Mabel yes, Norman. I was going to bring her up. Yeah, yeah. Was she yeah. the one who they found her dead in a in her garage or something? Or I mean, think oh, that was Thelma Todd. Thelma Todd, right? They yeah. don't. They think maybe it was suicide, but they're not sure. Sound, in fact, I just got a, a book on that. Uh, writ that was self published by a guy who had written another book on a detective here in L.A. named Harry Raymond. Uh, and I got a the guy's name Patrick Jennings. This guy is an amazing author. He. Uh, like you're saying, he had to rely just on newspaper archives and whatever historical stuff he found, but he gave a very three-dimensional view on uh, both the uh, Thelma Todd and the uh, um, uh, Harry Raymond stories. And if you love old gritty L.A., hmm. those are two great books. I'm only halfway through the Thelma Todd book, and it sounds like it was just, you know... I like maybe she was passed out and just didn't turn off the car. Who knows? But right. It could have it, been an accident because I mean, yeah. what people said about her, I guess, and you'd know better than me if you're reading the book was that she didn't really seem to have any reason to, to commit suicide that it, no, people, that, people no. that knew her said she seemed, I mean, I know that doesn't mean much, you know, sometimes yeah. you just never know what someone's going through, but everybody was saying her career was going well, her life, she seemed yeah. happy. And then this just happened. You know, I, yeah. I look, I liked I loved her in the Laurel and Hardy movies and I think she was in one of the Marx Brothers movies. Oh, in in uh uh um maybe Horse Feathers? Horse Feathers. She's the one that very, she has that great Marx scene. Brothers movie I ever saw. Right. She has that great scene with Groucho where she's like the dean's wife or something and he's in her bedroom with her and then of course she's also having an affair with Zeppo who is playing yes, Groucho's yes. He's playing Groucho's son in the movie. It's just yes, great yes. stuff. It's great stuff. <laughs> great movie. Boy, we, we went all over the place here. Oh, and, totally, and, totally. And I have yeah. to say, and I have to apologize because we didn't even get to Titanus El, and El Ring. And I wanted to, but but uh, we'll, promise me you'll do this again so we can talk about it. I will. Well. Oh, oh you, don't, you do not have to twist my arm. I enjoy doing this. And, uh, oh, and Mabel Normand. Yes. The most adorable silent actress I've ever read about. If you read uh, biographical stuff on her, very fascinating woman. Very. And and important and interesting for people to learn about because we always think about Chaplin and Keaton mm-hmm. and, and, you know, ha- Harold Lloyd and uh, Harry Langdon and people like that. And she was right in that class with all of them, you know. And, and Oh, oh. She, uh, I read several sources saying Charlie Chaplin probably wouldn't have made it if it weren't for her uh, pushing his career. Didn't she have, she had a series, right, where it was her and Zazu Pitts? They were like a comedy team, I think? It, well, it was her and Fatty Arbuckle. Fatty Arbuckle, uh, okay. Yeah, they, they did a whole bunch of silent shorts where they were, you know, where, you know, apparently they're very close friends, too. And uh, 
Uh, you know, of course, Fatty Arbuckle, there's another story, a very sad one where he just got railroaded pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And comp- apparently just did nothing wrong and just his career was never oh, able exactly. to come back. And exactly. to the point where I have to say, even when I, cause I grew up around people that were big, that movie fans and they were older people who had grown up in that era, really twenties, thirties, forties. And even as a kid, I remember hearing the story because they still believed that he was guilty. And you're talking about decades mm-hmm. later, the man is long yep. gone. Here I am. I'm a person born in the seventies and I'm still being raised with the idea that Fatty Arbuckle was like a, a murdering, you know, whatever, you know, killed this woman at a party. And yes, it's completely not true. The man's reputation destroyed for generations. Absolutely. Horrible, horrible. Yes. Well, Kurt, thank you for this. This has been stupendous. We need oh. to start a silent movies podcast. How about that? Oh, Me there movies. you go. I'm there. <laughs> I'm there. Since I started doing this, I've gotten the idea for about 12 other podcasts with different guests. <laughs> So one of these days, one of these days, this has well, been I just, great. I, yeah. Thank you for having me, man. I love talking with you. And, oh my God. It was so wonderful meeting you and your wife at Cauliflower Alley. What a fun shindig that was. Thank you. Yes. And I will, I have to say, I'll tell you this because, you know, when I, I brought her last year and she's always kind of humoring me like, all right, we'll go to your wrestling uh-huh. thing and meet all your wrestling people. And I was like, I was telling her there's going to be more people this year. You know, last year, a lot of people stayed back for COVID and I specifically said one of the people I really want you to meet is Kurt Brown Vandal Drummond because I think you will like him a lot. And I was correct. So thank oh, you. Oh, thank thank you. Oh, that that <laughs> that means a lot to me. But she's an awesome woman. Thank you. I'll pass that along. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Vandal Drummond. I hope you survived. I hope you enjoyed it. And I think now you'll agree with me that really the only way to do an interview like that justice is to run it uncensored. So I hope you forgive me. And we will be getting right back to our typical PG-related content, starting with next week's episode, which uh, I'm going to have a, a, a guest on that has a very unique insight into the wrestling business because she is the daughter of one of the most famous and beloved wrestlers of the 70s and 80s. Um, She is the daughter of J.J. Dillon. I'm talking about Pam Morrison, who it has has been my pleasure to get to know over the past couple of years from things like Cauliflower Alley and convention appearances and what have you. Just a wonderful, wonderful, sweet person with incredible stories, memories, reminiscences uh, of of traveling with her dad, J.J. Dillon, hitting the road as a kid and being backstage and the things you see, the things that um, the stories that you can share, the stories you can't share. Well, have a little bit of everything next week on Shut Up and Wrestle. So, so stay tuned. Um, other great guests on the way. I've been talking about Chris Goff who is a former WWE writer and producer who I knew well back in the day at the company. He's going to be a guest in the weeks to come. I've also got coming up Irish Mickey Doyle, 
the great journeyman wrestler of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, somebody broken into the business by the Sheik himself. He is a guest coming up. And I'm also proud to say that I am very close to landing what I call the white whale of Shut Up and Wrestle, and that is the godfather of professional wrestling magazine writers and photographers, Bill Apter. Bill has assured me, and we even have an interview scheduled and set up that he is going to be a guest on Shut Up and Wrestle, so I may be uh, doing that soon and saving it for a very special episode or a very special occasion. So keep listening. And, of course, there's many ways that you can find Shut Up and Wrestle. There is suawpod.com. That is our official website. You can also find Shut Up and Wrestle on uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Wherever you find your favorite podcasts, you can find us. You're also welcome to join the conversation in the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. That's Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Go there and um, you will see all the extra additional content that we post and share related to this show. Uh, There's also my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic You can get it in digital print and audio form at Amazon.com. And I have a couple of signed copies as well. If you're interested, reach out to me at Solomon at Yahoo.com. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get at PWI-online.com. I also write for the great UK wrestling magazine, Inside the Ropes, which you can get at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. Please, if you're doing so, continue listening every morning to the wrestling news from Arcadia and Vanguard. I am the news editor, and I have a hand in putting that script together every single day. And so I hope you enjoy it. And if you haven't checked it out, please do so. It is an indispensable listen for your daily wrestling news content. Um, If you are looking for me on social media, you will find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can also find me on Facebook, my writer page on Facebook, Brian Solomon Writer. And if you go to any one of those platforms, you will find the link to my official author web page on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you to free your mind and the rest will follow. So long, wrestling fans. I need your mind.